0: I think th- I think we did a first talk about why the library is closed when we get here to record. I was a little bit confused
1: back in my day, the library didn't close and students stayed there all night
0: that like here that's only like during finals and they make a big deal about the library being open twenty four hours
1: yeah that's weird
0: So we like came up to the door and, and like everything was locked but you can that you can card into the building, but then the studio that we're trying to record in is locked so
1: yeah, like I remember when I was in uh, college and I had roommates that I maybe didn't have the same sleep schedule as, sure. I would wake up at five and go to the library because it was like the only place I could click clack on my computer.
0: Wow. And, I, and I think making the front door secure where you have to use your card to get in is enough. Like the, yeah. I don't think the studio down here needs to be locked until a certain time in the morning, especially if we signed up for that time.
1: I agree. Anywho, we're here now.
0: We're starting. We're in it. Uh, first up is we need to somewhat make fun of you for your Stanley bottle or your Stanley cup. Is it is it a cup or a bottle? I don't know. Oh, okay. We're already not having this.
1: <laughs> I have gotten so much heat this week about my Stanley.
0: Well, now you need to back up. When did you get it and how excited were you? For, for the record, she has one of the, the classic, like, huge Stanley <laughs> bottles with the straw and everything. The, the garbage pail yep. Stanley.
1: Yep. I got my Stanley when I was home for Christmas. <laughs> okay, hear me out.
0: No, go for it. I'm ready. I'm ready.
1: The color is so pretty. It's this, like, sage green. It matches my new suitcase. Yep, there it is. It holds so much water.
0: And how much water did you drink before this bottle? I didn't. Like, so none?
1: None. <laughs> I, I drank bean water.
0: Uh okay. But how, how many superpowers do you have now that you're hydrated?
1: Okay, I'm a hydrated girly, and I can do anything
0: now. <laughs> <laughs> so Riley has unlocked the secret of drinking water. But
1: okay, here we go. I bought my Stanley at Target, of course. and.
0: Where else would you buy things?
1: Where else do I buy things? I bought it at Target and honestly it okay, I'm not like a Stanley fanatic. I just wanted a big water yeah. bottle.
0: Yeah. And to be fair, you already had a water bottle too. So it was not like it's not like you were seeking out something that you needed a water
1: no. bottle. No, honestly I think it just I I I got swept away. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry. I was in Target. It was right after Christmas. Did you
0: hop the counter to get it? No. Did you beat anybody up?
1: No. There were many of them, but they had this gorgeous green color. and I was like, you know, I just need this. So I bought it, and honestly, it was kind of annoying on the plane because it doesn't fit into, like, any pocket. On well, my... you have to keep it upright. Right? Yeah, you <laughs> have to keep it upright because they leak. And so went the entire day traveling, like holding this thing. And then on the plane, it was like sitting in between my legs. So it's you know, honestly, it was the old like,
0: crotch cup holder
1: <laughs> do not recommend for traveling. So I also it's thing.
0: not the like salmon pink color that no, people beat no. each other up over.
1: No, it's a beautiful sage green. So I brought it home, it lives on my side table next to my couch, and I like it because it holds so much water, so I fill it up at the beginning of the day, and if I'm at home all day I can just kind of drink it. It's very pleasurable to drink out of, it has a nice smooth flow, so I just like it. it keeps things very cold if I want them cold.
0: Here's what I think separates you from the stereotypical Stanley Carrier. Do you bring it to the gym? No. Okay plus one.
1: Okay. And here's, here's the issue with this past week. So I worked at the shop on Monday and I have a, I have a water bottle that lives in my car. It's my car water bottle.
0: That was going to be my second question. (laughs) Do you have a specific cup holder that you had to get to put the Stanley in your car? No. Great, plus two. No. You're not fitting the stereotype of a Stanley carrier.
1: So over the summer, the company that I worked for had, like, merchandise and stuff, so I got this giant cup for free, and it's Stanley-esque, but I think it was, like, before Stanleys were a thing, so it's just this, like, giant water bottle. It has a handle.
0: It was definitely before they were popular, but it's the same style.
1: It's the same style, but I got it, I was like, this thing's fantastic, it's huge, I kept it on my desk over the summer. And again, like, I didn't have to constantly get up and get water or whatever. So that lives in my car. And when I go to work, I just bring that one into work with me, and then it goes back in my car afterwards. Well, me being me, me, I left it at work on Monday. So I didn't have my car water bottle anymore. So Tuesday rolls around, and I'm like, oh, I need... <laughs> I, I, don't, <laughs> I don't even drink that much water in my car. It's just more of, like, I need that yep. water bottle there. I was like, well, okay, like I'll bring the Stanley in my car and it'll be the placeholder until I go back to work on Thursday and pick up my other car.
0: So you're saying this is the one time
1: you brought your Stanley to come? Yes. My Stanley is a, it's a, it's a at home Stanley, you know, like indoor cats, it's an indoor Stanley specifically in my home. Because I know, I know people, they're like, they're going to be like, you no, you have a Stanley.
0: <laughs> so, okay, but they were too. I know.
1: And so, um, Tuesday I put it in my car, but then I realized I didn't have my water bottle in my backpack that I always have. So I was like, fuck, I'm, like, I'm going to be that person. And so I grabbed it and I was like, okay, just walk with confidence. <laughs>
0: <laughs> Don't put it over your shoulder. Don't put it over <laughs> my shoulder.
1: And I walk into class first thing Tuesday and just, I think it was Charlie or somebody, the second I walk into class was like, oh, you got a Stanley. I was like, oh no.
0: You were, you were pegged immediately.
1: I was pegged immediately. And I was like, guys, this is my at home Stanley. Like she's very shy.
0: (laughs) This is not the normal me.
1: It's not. So, so yes, I, and then I worked at the other store Tuesday night I went straight from school to work, so I brought my Stanley in, and I was getting shit at work for having a Stanley. I'm telling you, it's been a rough week for me. Anyway, I went back to work last night. I got my car water bottle back. It's back in my car. Stanley's back on my my uh, side table. Do you immediately
0: room. feel less judged?
1: Y- yes, but I, I think the damage is done. It was a tough week <laughs> for
0: scarred. me. scarred. <laughs>
1: But I stand by, I love my Stanley.
0: Some Stanley trauma.
1: I love my Stanley, not because it's a Stanley, but because it holds just like a massive amount of water and I'm lazy and I don't want to get up to fill it. Does it have a name? Not yet. Okay. It's a female. I definitely oh, get like okay. female vibes from her. So. Sure. Yeah.
0: Not yet named though. Okay. Not yet named. Um, the giving you shit for the Stanley kind of leads into, cause I think this person gave you shit for the Stanley as well. Oh, absolutely. But it leads into the next story from one of your interviews.
1: Oh my gosh. So one of our, well, a couple of our classmates are doing interviews for some project that they're working on and. It's
0: like a branding project. Yeah, it's
1: like a brand, it's some marketing thing. And so I was doing this interview with our classmate John yesterday And we get to the end and John and his wife are expecting, they're having a kid, TBD, like seemingly end of February. And I've worked with John in a couple other projects, like we're friendly, I like John a lot. And it's pretty out of my nature to be like kind and generous towards people. (laughs) So at the end of it, I was trying to like offer my support and say like, you know, when the kid comes, like. I know you have family, but if there's anything you need, like, you know, I'm here. But in my brain, I mixed up, feel free to reach out and don't hesitate to reach out. And I said, if you need anything, don't feel free to reach out.
0: (laughs) He was probably like, wow, you really didn't like what I said about your Stanley, huh?
1: And like, he already pokes fun at me for being like a very brash New Englander and And I think, like, in my brain, it still, like, made sense. Like, I knew what I was saying. And he he just, like, looks at me and he's like, so I shouldn't feel free to reach out if I need anything. Thank you. (laughs) And the worst part is, like, we were on a call for a project a couple weeks ago, and he's got to think I'm such an idiot. (laughs) Something, like, similar happened. Like, I totally just, like, messed up my words And said the wrong thing. And he never lets it go. Like, he always calls me out on it, even though he knows what I'm trying to say. But the worst part on that call, I was drinking a beer, but I was probably, like, two sips into the Mm -hmm. beer. So I'm sure he was thinking I was just, like, (laughs) drunk as a skunk. Trying to work on this
0: project, and the chick's hammered.
1: (laughs) So, John, um, I'm sorry. (laughs) But also, don't feel free to reach out. (laughs)
0: Help, help, will not be granted <laughs> <laughs> too much trauma from the Stanley,
1: too much trauma. It's been a rough week for Riley, <laughs> a lot of, a lot of trauma. This term is
0: way worse than I thought it would
1: be. It's pretty bad, but no, okay. we'll persevere.
0: Well, I think the, like the entire script we have for today is just me asking you questions. Cause my next question is you have a, you have a little Orlando trip coming up this weekend.
1: I am so excited. Tell
0: me... Okay, first question. Tell me what that's all about, and then I'm going to ask a second question about it.
1: Okay. So I work at Mill City, and Mill City has a race team, which anybody can join. It's literally open to anybody. There's like 800 people on it, but a few of my teammates qualified for the Olympic trials in the marathon. The marathon for the olympic trials is this weekend in orlando
0: what's the qualifying time
1: for women it was sub 237 which is insane and i don't remember i think men was like 218 which is equally insane
0: and then like not too long ago it was 242 yes. and they like drastically lowered
1: it. yes so i am flying out to orlando today the olympic trials marathon starts at 10 o'clock tomorrow morning There was a lot of controversy around this trials, by the way, this is just a very niche runner (laughs) controversy. There were a number of cities that were sort of nominated or made it to the final rounds to be chosen as the location for the Olympic trials. And Orlando was ultimately chosen and it was a little bit controversial. Just Orlando isn't a great spot to host this. Hmm like weather wise okay. it's just kind of risky and then they announced that the marathon was going to start at noon to which everyone said why are we starting a marathon at noon and so there was there was a lot of pushback it's already in orlando which is like you know if it's february you can choose somewhere like that's slightly warmer for february so you ideally want like 40 to 50 degree weather sure noon in orlando it's gonna be like 75 and sunny, which if you're yes. on vacation, if you're spectating, wonderful. is wonderful. Yep. But as a runner, it's not ideal. Anyhow, so they got enough heat that they pushed it down to 10 a.m., which honestly I don't think is any better.
0: Probably but not.
1: Here we are. So I'm flying down today to go to Orlando, watching the race tomorrow. Three of my teammates are running. I would say one. Gabby Rooker has- You're leading into
0: my second question. Oh. (laughs) Is allowing you a little bit of time to fangirl over her. Oh my gosh. Which is great. I'm here for it.
1: Gabby is incredible. Gabby ran her first marathon, I think, in 2021. She was a college gymnast and a very good college gymnast, but didn't start running until, you know, she was out of college she very begrudgingly like went for a 5k run with her husband, Alex, who was like a collegiate sprinter. Yep. So he's also very talented. They went for a 5k and it was like the most miserable Just experience I'm experience <laughs> of her life. So it took a while for her to like sort of get get into running and like enjoy it. She's very competitive by nature. So I think once she kind of figured out that she could sort of like be competitive with it and have it be something that she trains and and works on. I think then she got more into it, but it it really is a very recent thing. She's, I I think she's she's 36 now. So if we're thinking about like that first 5K, let's say she was like 24. It took her a while to actually like, like running.
0: Mm -hmm. And just for reference, most of the professional runners, what's like their prime age for like peak of their career?
1: Probably late twenties.
0: Yeah. Okay, that makes sense.
1: Yeah. Most so like the kind of normal trajectory for a professional runner, you generally run. Most of the people who make it pro are D one division one athletes. There's certainly plenty of division three, division two athletes who make it, but sort of the most competitive ones generally go D one. They usually have a pretty successful college career. So they'll be cross country runners. They'll be track runners. Um, But then they graduate, and they try to get picked up by some sort of team or shoe sponsor. You generally have to be pretty good.
0: Um, And from, like, a pretty select school. Yeah.
1: So, and there's kind of two trajectories. You can stick with doing track. I mean, there's professional track Mm -hmm. athletes as adults. Or you can kind of move into the marathon, half-marathon sometimes 5k, 10k distance. A lot of people do that. It's become increasingly popular, I'd say, in the last 10 years. But that's kind of the trajectory. You join a team and, you know, train and you do that. You know, I would say most athletes peak, most female athletes anyway, peak late 20s, early 30s, and then kind of like some stay and do master's running. Des Linden is a good example of this. She just I think she just turned 40, so she's now considered a master.
0: And is she going to be at the trials this this weekend? She is. Cool. Yes. Cool.
1: Anywho, so that's kind of the trajectory, and then most runners kind of retire at some point. You know, let's say late 30s, a lot of them will go into coaching or something else. Um,
0: But then as you're talking about for Gabby, she, like, picked it up really late. She did. And instead of dropping off, she picked up very, very quickly. Yeah,
1: so she ran... Grandma's Marathon was her first, I'm sorry, Gabby, if I get any of this wrong, in 2021. And she ran in the 250s. I want to say it was 256, 257, which for a debut marathon is crazy. Mm-hmm. A year later, I believe she ran Grandma's again, and she ran like 230. That was the one she Two Wasn't
0: that the one she qualified?
1: Yeah. In the In the 230s, I believe, or 220s. I don't know. She qualified for the Olympic trials in that one. Her and Kim Horner, who's also on the race team, qualified there too. So it was a very big deal for the Mill City community. Anyhow, she ran Chicago this past fall and ran 224, which is insane. It put her, I think she was 10th for American women in the marathon, which, like, she's at that point, like, two and a half years into running marathons. Yeah, it's just li- insane. It's literally just, just insane.
0: like a person who picked up running, found out she's good at it, and then trained a little bit, found out she's really good at it.
1: Yeah. And she's, I mean, she's very smart. She's very hardworking. The sort of more impressive thing is up until very, very recently, she was working full time as a physician assistant. So she 12 would work...
0: 12-hour shifts.
1: Yeah, she would work like 10 to 12-hour shifts seven days in a row and still be putting in these like 120-mile training weeks so she's incredible she just announced uh, she is now a nike professional athlete she's been down in austin for about a month training down there she's down to she's either part-time as a pa or she's oh
0: i thought she went down to just given a given the pro athlete remember. thing a full shot
1: i think she's you might be right anyway so her and kim and then One of the Mill City employees, Heather, are all going to be running. And then this guy, Danny Doherty, who I'm not sure if he's on the team, but he's sort of very closely affiliated with Mill City. He's also going to be running. So it's very exciting. I am excited to go down there. Also, it's warm and sunny. So, yeah.
0: You had told me about Gabby quite a while ago, actually. Um, And I think that was before she qualified. But you sent me an article where it was – after maybe her second marathon, mm-hmm. but you sent me an article of when she was interviewed and something that stuck out was, you know, she had switched to these like crazy, like 120, 130 mile weeks, yep. still working and like still improving her time. And the quote that stuck out to me was they asked her, how do you balance this? Like, do you see yourself doing this long and And the way she answered it was, I'm going to continue doing this and pushing myself as long as the mental health is there and is okay with it. Yep. So I, I like that because she wasn't going to make this, you know, her entire life, but also you know, see what she could do and kind of challenge herself. And then more recently, you sent me the Allie on the Run show mm-hmm. podcast, which is, it interviews her for about an hour or so. And it's fantastic. She's so humble. Yep. She's so, you know, honestly just a normal person who found out she's incredible at running.
1: Yeah. Yeah. We'll put that in the show notes. Cause yeah. it is, if you want to learn more about Gabby, um, and kind of get her take on, her trajectory, it's a very good interview.
0: And we could probably talk about that the rest of the episode. Yeah. But Riley's been advertising, not advertising, uh, Riley's been playing up her story for a few days now. And I think there's a full table of contents. There's, I think it's like six or seven pages. So we should probably get to that at some point.
1: Yeah. I, okay. This is one of my favorite stories. And this has taken over my life for the past, like, four days. And which, I, which I fully support. Yeah, it's, no, I'm okay with like that. Thing. If you've been sitting in class with me this week, I have not been paying attention. I've been working on this story, so. Um,
0: Honestly, the most notes you've ever taken, but it was working on the story.
1: Yeah, <laughs> for sure. I'm sure the professors were like, wow, she is really into yeah. this topic. Typing no, I away not. furiously. I'm sorry, professors, if you listen, but I was not paying attention. Sorry, Career Center, I was also not paying attention okay so again this is one of my absolute favorite stories I have listened to so many podcasts I've watched so many sort of short films and documentaries on this and I I don't know that I have an opinion on it which is unlike
0: me do you is it one that you would need an opinion on or is it just yes okay okay
1: so and this is probably weird but this is just how my mind works I remember where I was When I heard this on a podcast for the first time, (laughs) Uh, I was running, of course, and I was listening to the Morbid episode, which was the first one I listened to, and I was near the Minneapolis Sculpture Garden with the cherry and spoon. Yeah, I don't know why I remember that, but here we are.
0: Chapter
1: one. (laughs) Chapter one. So this is a mystery dating back to 1945 that includes disappearances, a house fire, possible arson, possible murder and possible kidnapping
0: mm-hmm. it's got it all all sorts of possibles
1: so george Soder was born in italy in 1895 he was born with the name giorgio sadu he immigrated to the united states through ellis island in 1908 and that is when he sort of took the name george Soder. it was very common for immigrants to take more americanized names Especially with the rampant xenophobia in America. So
0: I mean that hell that happened with the story I told yeah. last week, where she changed her name to Belle.
1: Yep. Yeah. So immigrated in nineteen oh eight. He was thirteen years old. One of his older brothers who had accompanied him to Ellis Island immediately returned to Italy, leaving thirteen year old George on his own in the United States.
0: He took one look around and was like, Nope. <laughs>
1: Yeah, so 13 years old, he gets here by himself. There is no family. They do not have any friends. He has no connections here. So he started working for sort of a variety of odd jobs after he moved to the U.S. His first job was working on the railroads in Pennsylvania, where he basically delivered water and other supplies to workers. Next, he worked as a driver in Smithers, West Virginia.
0: Good old Smithers.
1: Good old Smithers. And he must have enjoyed his time as a trucker because he then started his own trucking company. And this tidbit might be relevant later on, so keep it in the back of your mind. His trucking company specialized in hauling dirt to construction sites. Foreshadowing. Foreshadowing. So it's during this time that George met Jenny Kipriani, a young woman who lived in the area and who had also emigrated from Italy. She came when she was about three years old, so she had been in the States for longer. And her family owned a little music shop in town, and so he walked into the shop one day. Oh, of course. Shopkeeper's daughter was there, and he was like, okay, I'm going to make this woman my wife. And um, he did. The two soon married and settled in Fayetteville, West Virginia, which had a very vibrant Italian immigrant community. So it was a nice little community for them to live in, both Italian immigrants. So
0: They made some music together.
1: They maybe made some music together. They made some other things together. <laughs> I also looked into Fayetteville because I had never heard of it. It's this small town in West Virginia. Current population is about 2,800 people. The town's motto is, where adventure meets small town charm. It looks super cute. I'm probably going to go there at some point.
0: <laughs> it's yeah, also cool. right
1: next to a national park so nice. it looks very nice so the solders were a highly respected family in the community basically due to the success of george's business and their involvement with the community however a man after my own heart george was notoriously outspoken
0: especially he carried a stanley cup around
1: he probably carried a stanley honestly he was especially outspoken in his opposition to italian dictator mussolini This had led to some strong arguments with other members of the immigrant community in the town. Obviously a big Italian immigrant community, Mussolini was a big figure in Italian history, so a little bit of um, strife there. But despite being outspoken about most things in his life, George was very quiet about his life before moving to the US. He never explained why him and his brother decided to leave Italy in their youth or why his brother almost immediately returned to Italy after arriving to the
0: U.S. Interesting. In
1: 1923, the couple had their first of 10 children.
0: Okay, they did make other things. I told you they made other things.
1: <laughs> the youngest child, Sylvia, was born in 1942. So basically from 1923 to 1942, they were just procreating. <laughs> Got it. <laughs> if you're wondering what they were up to. <laughs> Um, yeah, what are your hobbies? <laughs> <laughs> I couldn't find a ton of information about Jenny, his wife, but she seems like a lovely lady.
0: Oh yeah, she's just pregnant all the time.
1: She's pregnant all the time. That, that's basically her life. Raising ten children, I could not imagine. <laughs> so, uh, I want to talk very briefly about the war.
0: Ah, uh, the war. <laughs> <laughs> In
1: 1943, Mussolini was deposed and executed I also looked into this last night, which I... I got down a bit of a rabbit hole at, like, 11 p.m. You? I probably learned this at some point in my education. Mussolini essentially tried to flee with his wife because he was a terrible human being and was escaping persecution. He was caught, I believe, in Switzerland, and brought back to Italy where he was... Him and his wife were shot. And they were hung by their feet upside down, basically in the center of the city and people were allowed just to like, do what they wanted with Ugh. the bodies. Yeah, I found pictures, I will not post them. No. <laughs>
0: if,
1: if you're interested, look it up yourself. But I, I was like, this would never happen today. At least not in the States. George's criticism of the late dictator had left some hard feelings in his community, as you might imagine. And in October 1945, so two years after Mussolini was executed, a visiting insurance salesman to the solder home, Warned George that, quote, his goddamn house is going up in smoke, and your children are going to be destroyed. You are going to be paid for the dirty remarks you have been making about Mussolini.
0: This is just some dude that shows up at the door? Yep. A salesman. mm -mm. Nope.
1: (laughs) Like, sir, this is not how you sell things. (laughs) Nope. So, suspiciously, around this time, another visitor to the home walked around the house and warned George that a pair of fuse boxes on his home would, quote, cause a fire someday. George found this to be sort of a strange observation, since they had just had the house rewired, they had a new electric stove put in, and during that time the electric company basically rewired everything, did inspections, and said everything was a okay
0: So no fuse boxes are going to go up in flames spontaneously, right?
1: No, certainly not. So anyway, we've got Georgia Jenny, the solder parents, and ten children. Um, It is 1945. The main event of this story happens on Christmas Eve of that year. So that night, the solder parents and nine of the ten solder children were in the house, with the tenth away in the military. That night began like any other. Some of the children were were still awake when Georgia Jenny headed to bed. I read that one of the sisters who had, like one of the older sisters, had a job in town. And with the money that she had saved, she bought presents for her younger siblings. And they were allowed to stay up late and open some of their presents that their sister had gotten them. So George and Jenny went to bed while the kids are downstairs, like, playing with their toys.
0: That's why you have ten. They can all just entertain each other. Exactly.
1: So it's important to kind of understand where all of the children sleep. There's a lot of them.
0: I was going to add, I didn't know if there would be detail on this, but how many bedrooms are in this house?
1: That is actually very important to the story. Okay. From what I could tell, there's like, um, and I, I could be getting it wrong, but this is how I interpreted it. There's like a main level, which is like the living level. There's a second story, which is where, um, it sounds like two or three of the bedrooms were. Okay. So George and Jenny's Jenny. <laughs> it's <like> Harry Potter. <laughs> George and Jenny. George and Jenny's bedroom was.
0: I support that slip, though.
1: <laughs> their two-year-old daughter, so the youngest, Sylvie, was in a crib in their bedroom. Okay. So the three of them are in that room. And then it sounds like the two older boys, so the oldest is away in the war, but the two sort of next oldest either shared a bedroom or each had their own bedroom also on that floor. Okay. Then there's an attic, which is where five of the children slept. Wow. It sounds like the, the young ones slept up there.
0: Okay.
1: It doesn't sound like a bad situation. I think that's just...
0: Oh, one of them nice attics? <laughs> they
1: ran out of room. So the this particular night, the two older boys were in either their bedroom or respective bedrooms. George, Ginny... Oh,
0: fuck. <laughs> <laughs> it's stuck now. I am changing the script. <laughs> George and Ginny Weasley... <laughs> Immigrants from Italy.
1: (laughs) George and Jenny and the two-year-old were in their bedroom. Most of the younger kids eventually made it up to the attic, and then I think one of them stayed downstairs, like fell asleep on the couch playing with their new toy or something. So they're kind of all scattered everywhere around the house, but the youngest ones are for the most part up in the attic. Got it? I'm with you. With me. Great. So at 12.30 sort of the next morning, so Christmas morning. Jenny was awoken by the telephone in the house ringing. Jenny went downstairs and answered the phone, but was confused when she heard the voice of a woman she didn't recognize and the sound of laughter and clinking glasses in the background. When she told the woman on the phone that she had the wrong number, Jenny recalled that the woman let out a, quote, weird laugh.
0: Is this like a 1945 butt dial?
1: Kind of sounds like it. And we will circle back to it okay. sort of at the end. But it sounds like a butt dial. Somebody's at a party, yeah, Christmas party. They're
0: laughing in the background.
1: Exactly. So she hangs up the phone. She goes back upstairs, goes back to sleep. At 1 a.m., Jenny was again awakened by the sound of an object hitting the house's roof with a loud bang, then a rolling noise. So, like, rolling
0: off the roof. Ooh, okay. It wasn't Santa landing on the roof, was it?
1: Honestly, could have been, but... I don't think Santa and usually rolls
0: off. <laughs> <laughs> Did not stick the landing.
1: Oh, there go all the reindeer.
0: <laughs> Good thing the sister bought all the presents. Santa's not bringing any.
1: So she laid in bed and listened for a time, but after she heard nothing else, she basically just went back to sleep. Which, I'm going to be honest, if I heard something hit the roof and roll off, I'd be like, what the fuck? Well,
0: I'm, I not gonna, go. I'm not going to lay there and be like, okay, well, there's nothing else that hit the roof. <laughs> We're probably fine.
1: So she goes back to sleep. Honestly, I feel like if you have 10 kids, you're probably used to just
0: oh, total yeah. chaos One at of all the toddlers through so, the other one.
1: Exactly. So that was at 1 a.m. After another half hour, she woke up again. This time she smelled smoke. When she got up, she found the room that George used for his office was on fire around the telephone line and the fuse box. Oof. So upon discovering the fire, Jenny woke up George and told him to wake up the two oldest sons who were sleeping in the same area as the house as them. So George and Jenny were able to get four of the children out of the house, but the remaining five were asleep in the attic area. By the time the Sodders attempted to get the rest of the children, the fire had reached the stairs that went up to the attic. The Sodders who were awake were yelling up to the children in the attic, but heard nothing in response. So, a few unfortunate and suspicious coincidences. Once the Sodders who made it outside were out there, one of the older sons searched for a ladder to attempt to rescue the remaining children from the attic. There were windows in the attic, so their, their plan was to essentially take the ladder break the glass or have them open the window if they're able to and get them out. However, the ladder wasn't in its typical spot and the boy who was searching was never able to find it. Mm. So unable to find the ladder, George scaled the side of the house in an attempt to break the window to the attic and rescue the children. From what I gathered, he did manage to scale the house, which is fairly impressive uh, for a father of 10 but he like punched the glass and he was a bloody mess oh yeah oh yeah and it sounds like it wasn't super successful whether he wasn't able to open the window enough or he like really didn't i mean i imagine he didn't have any leverage if he was trying to get the children out so
0: like best case i'm thinking is there was like a trellis or something that went up the side of the house or.
1: Yeah, so that didn't work, and George then tried to bring both of the trucks that he used in his business up to the house and use them to climb to the attic window. But neither of them would start, despite having worked perfectly the previous day.
0: Both won't start. Yep. And there's not a ladder in sight. Nope. Oh my gosh. This is after breaking the window and it didn't work? Yep. We are running out of time. We're
1: running out of time. So because of the fire, I said the fire started in, or seemed to have started in George's office at like the telephone line and the fuse box. Yep. Because of that, they weren't able to call, they weren't able to call the fire department uh, or course. anyone. But neighbors who saw the fire tracked down fire chief F.J. Morris, who was reached pretty soon after. It says like a little after one, the fire was discovered around 1.30, so seems like they got a hold of him pretty quickly. The kind of funny thing is they didn't call the fire chief, the neighbors. They actually went to his house and woke him up. So, the 1940s of it yeah, all. Uh,
0: do the bucket brigade thing or <laughs> something.
1: <laughs> so, firefighters were told that children were trapped inside, but no fire truck was sent until 8 a.m. Ew, hey, what? seven hours after the fire was discovered. As such, the remaining members of the Sauter family were forced to watch the house burn down and collapse over the next hour.
0: With people still in it, or did everyone eventually get out?
1: They didn't have their remaining children. They weren't able to reach them. Oh, my gosh. So a little bit of clarity about the sort of fire rescue situation in 1945 and in rural America. The fire department didn't have a siren back then, so when somebody called to report an incident, basically an operator would take the call and then wake up a firefighter who would then have to reach fellow firefighters one by one. It was kind of a phone tree situation.
0: Ah, efficient.
1: Yeah. And the fire department was short-staffed due to many of the firefighters serving in the war
0: effort. It's also Christmas. Maybe they're like also Christmas. way on holiday or something.
1: Additionally, and this is the biggest flaw I can see, the fire chief was unable to drive the fire engine. So he had to wait for somebody else who was able to before attending to the fire.
0: What? Did it give a reason?
1: Said he was on, Like, I think he was physically unable to. Oh. Like, he didn't know how to or...
0: do his feet not reach the pedals or something? <laughs>
1: Are there pedals on a fire truck? <laughs> do you think that's how it works? Yes.
0: What do you think? There's a throttle? I don't know. <laughs> I don't it's actually voice activated. I
1: don't know. Go,
0: go, gadget fire truck.
1: I've never thought about this before.
0: Yes, there are absolutely pedals.
1: Oh, I wonder if I can drive a fire truck someday.
0: <laughs> I'm so happy with where this ended up.
1: Okay. <laughs> So anyway, the fire chief is contacted. He then tries to contact literally anybody who can drive this damn truck. They get there at 8 a.m., you know, better late than never.
0: Could have called, like, an Uber fire truck or something like that.
1: So by the time the fire department arrived, the house was little but ashes. And there wasn't much that the fire department could do, but they did do an informal search after arriving at the scene. And by 10 a.m., two hours later, the fire chief told the Sodders that they had not found any bones or other evidence of human remains, as might have been expected if the other children had been in the house as it burned.
0: Okay, so they yelled to the children, right? Yep. Did they get any responses? No. Or like, you know, they're trapped on the other side of the stairs, they just can't get down? No. Hmm. Fishy.
1: No. So, the... Five missing children were Maurice, aged 14, Martha Lee, aged 12, Louis, aged 10, Jenny Jr., aged 8, Ginny, Jr., and and Betty Dolly, aged 6. Betty Dolly. Betty Dolly. The fire chief believed that the five children unaccounted for had died in the fire, suggesting that it had been hot enough to burn their bodies completely. Ooh. Because it was Christmas, they did push off a more thorough search until after the holiday. Don't
0: and the, I don't want to interrupt celebrating.
1: No, no. And the family was told to leave the scene undisturbed until a more thorough search could be conducted. But less than a week later, George Sauter bulldozed five feet of dirt over the remains of the house with the intention of creating a garden to honor his missing children.
0: So the house is ashes, and he just pushes dirt straight over it.
1: Yep. Huh. Yep.
0: And the investigation has not happened yet. Correct. Was he told to wait for the investigation?
1: Yes. Cool. After four days, he thought, they're not coming back.
0: Well, that's that's where Santa went.
1: (laughs) So, uh, when I first heard the story, I was like, Something's fishy here about George. But then I said, like, if you lose five of your children, you're told they're dead. But also, like, bodies haven't been recovered. Can you imagine the amount of grief that you're dealing with?
0: I also, like, I know there was the kind of the foreshadowing about these people, like, coming and threatening his home. I have a hard time believing it was just over, like, comments he made.
1: We're only on page three of
0: eight. Oh, my Lord. We better keep moving.
1: <laughs> so I don't blame George. I, frankly, I try not to judge anyone when they're clearly grieving because people grieve so differently. On December 30th, just five days after the fire, death certificates were issued for the five missing children. So both of these facts were ruled by a coroner's jury. Have you heard of a coroner's jury?
0: Before?
1: No. Okay. I hadn't either. They're apparently still in existence, but used very rarely. Essentially what it is, is the coroner is going to determine, you know, the cause of death for the missing or dead individuals. The coroner apparently also determines the cause of the accident.
0: Of the accident, too. Okay.
1: But the coroner has a jury, like imagine a court jury... Of people, I saw, like, anywhere between five and ten people who essentially, like, have to rule on the coroner's decision. And so they're just, like, people. They have no, like, expertise. They're literally just...
0: They're given the coroner's information and they have to decide if it's right or not? Yes. What the fuck kind of... Yeah. <laughs> I can see how this would be...
1: So keep this jury concept in the back of your mind. It'll come back. So, uh, as you might imagine, a number of questions were raised immediately following the incident. George disputed the fire department's finding that the blaze was electrical in origin, again noting he had recently had the house rewired and inspected, and it was
0: deemed safe. Good to go.
1: The family found the ladder.
0: Tell me it was hidden.
1: The ladder was found at the bottom of an embankment 75 feet away from the house.
0: Yep. It just up and walked away, didn't it?
1: Yep. This is going to be just a list of questions.
0: I'm ready. Should I save my questions?
1: I don't know. It's up to you.
0: Okay.
1: A telephone repairman told the Sodders that the house's phone had not been burned through in the fire as they initially thought. Rather, the line had been cut by someone who had to have climbed 14 feet up the telephone pole to do so.
0: You're joking.
1: You know, one know a really good way to get 14 feet up.
0: Boy, if only someone had a ladder nearby.
1: Hmm. Interesting. This is when Jenny's motherhood and personality really shines mm. jenny was suspicious about the fire chief's claim that the fire would have been able to completely burn the children's bodies so that no remains were found
0: that like you'd have to be like basically lava
1: she first questioned this when she found intact household appliances in the ash of the house yep. so jenny being a mama Jenny conducted a private experiment burning animal bones, chicken bones, beef joints, pork chop bones, to see if the fire consumed them.
0: Mama's on a mission.
1: Each time, she was left with a heap of charred bones. Yep. Finally, Jenny reached out to a crematorium, which told her that human bones remain even after bodies are burned at 2,000 degrees Fahrenheit for two hours. Far longer and hotter than the solder house fire could have oh, been. Oh yeah. Oh yeah. Keep in mind that the solder family home was burned to the ground in 45 minutes.
0: Okay, so we've got a data point there.
1: Yep, just, just data. There's also the question of the trucks not starting when George and his sons tried to move them. I couldn't find any sources that discuss this more in depth, whether the trucks were tampered with or if it was more of an issue with them rushing and being in shock and
0: they uh, had to be tampered with. Yeah, the I ladder mean, the ladder walked away, the phone line cut itself. <laughs> and then they forgot how to start a car.
1: So, more evidence came out in the following year that would refute the claim that the fire was accidental. A few months after the incident, when the snow had melted, one of the Sodder daughters Sodder daughter
0: Sodder daughter
1: found a small rubber ball-like object in the brush nearby. Remember, Jenny was awoken for the second time that night after the phone call by the sound of something hitting and rolling off the roof. George said it looked like a pineapple bomb, which is like a hand grenade.
0: Pineapple bomb? So remember
1: that coroner's jury? Yep. A private investigator hired by the solders found that the insurance salesman who had threatened George...
0: Was on the jury.
1: Had been on the coroner's
0: jury. This fucking dude. That
1: ruled the fire an accident.
0: Never trust an insurance agent that comes to your house.
1: Furthermore, people came forward in the months following the incident saying that they saw the solder children immediately after the incident.
0: What? Where? So, They're just now saying this?
1: One woman... This is so nineteen forty five. But also probably true today.
0: Yeah, they're just out at the candy shop.
1: One woman who was watching the blaze said she saw some of them peering out of a passing car while the house was burning to the ground.
0: Oh. Another Also thank you for speaking up.
1: <laughs> she's like months later. She's <laughs> like, this seems relevant. <laughs> yeah. You guys didn't see that too? Another woman at a rest stop restaurant outside of Fayetteville said that she served the children breakfast the following morning.
0: I I could just see like all of these, all of these small town, uh, people just getting together later and be like, yeah, no, I saw them too. (laughs) You saw them. I saw them. I thought it was normal.
1: (laughs) And the woman at this restaurant thought it was a little strange. These children were in the restaurant eating and there was a car in the parking lot of this restaurant with Florida plates which was deemed unusual enough again, yep. like, small-town West Virginia. So that's just, just a data point. More data Finally, a woman at a Charleston hotel saw the children's photo in a newspaper and said she had seen four of the five a week after the fire. And I'm, I'm going to read a quote of what she said because oh, I hate how she said it, but the 1940s of it all. The children were accompanied by two women and two men, all of Italian extraction.
0: Extraction?
1: Yes. Unquote. Jesus. And this is a longer quote that I found sort of in an article, but this is a quote from the same woman. It says, quote, the entire party did register at the hotel and stayed in a large room with several beds. They registered about midnight. I tried That's to talk... Like- what? Red flag. Yeah. I tried to talk to the children in a friendly manner, but the men appeared hostile and refused to allow me to talk to the children. That
0: was going to be my question. Is like when you have abducted children, there's usually like, I don't know, they would be like forced to stay quiet or yeah. like they would act weird if they come in contact with other people in the public.
1: Yeah. So she says, one of the men looked at me in a hostile manner. He turned around and began talking rapidly in Italian. Immediately, the whole party stopped talking to me. I sensed that I was being frozen out, and so I said nothing more. They left early the next morning. So that's that.
0: So, data points, red flag, (laughs) Italian extraction.
1: (laughs) So, more controversy in the years following the fire. Two years after the incident, George Sauter saw a picture in the newspaper of school children in New York and became convinced that one of the children was his daughter, Betty, who at the time was six years old. So immediately upon seeing the photo, he hops in his car and drives to Manhattan. This is a dad on a mission.
0: Mom Mom had her mission, now he's got his.
1: Yep. Unsurprisingly, when he arrived at the school, the school was like, yeah, I can't You can't just (laughs) go, yeah. (laughs) This is like a probably six or seven year old girl, you can't just go like see her.
0: I feel your mission, but no.
1: Yeah. But this was kind of the most the first and most significant moment that George and Jenny both agreed like our children are out there. Yep. So they it started sort of their hiring of private detectives to track down their five missing children. And then another bizarre twist the fire chief told George that on the day after the fire, so this would have been Christmas Day 1945, he had recovered a body part from the ashes and buried it in a box on the property.
0: You said the fire chief did that? Yep. And didn't tell anybody?
1: Didn't tell anybody.
0: Not even this legitimate coroner's jury? Nope. Hmm.
1: And from the sort of sources that I saw, he confessed this to his uh, priest question mark.
0: Oh, so he's feeling guilty about it.
1: Priest or pastor or whoever what whatever denomination he was, he this confessed been, it.
0: This has been eating at me now.
1: And whoever this person was that he told basically said, like, yeah, you gotta you gotta own <laughs> up to this. <laughs>
0: I know this is confidential and everything, but. Yeah.
1: And so obviously, this revelation changed the whole situation. If the box could be recovered from the site and there really were remnants from one or more of the children in this box, then it basically could be said, like, yeah, they, they did die in the fire.
0: So but now there's a big mound of dirt over it. <laughs> right.
1: So, George and the fire chief went back to the site. And dug up the box.
0: Okay.
1: Which did, in fact, exist. Okay. They took the box to a funeral home to open it, to which, like, I give credit to George for having the patience. Like, I would have just brought...
0: Open the fucking box. <laughs> so,
1: like, open the box at the site. Yeah. Um, so, they opened up the box, and they found what looked like a fresh beef liver. It was very clear to the coroner that the liver, it, A, was not human, okay. and B had never been exposed to fire.
0: <laughs> what?
1: The fire chief later admitted that he placed it in there in hopes that these solders would find it and be satisfied that the missing children had indeed You're the fucking fire. kidding me.
0: <laughs> this fucking guy oh my God the the fire chief who can't operate his own fire trucks <laughs> who arrived hours later just basically wanted to trick the family so they would have some closure, yeah, and stop it, investigating this. Yeah. Okay, so he's so, in on it. So
1: I'm assuming his hope was that whenever the in the the deeper investigation into the fire happened, somebody would have uncovered this box, which also doesn't make sense because why, why would something be in a box? But
0: yeah, why well, was just the kid's liver in a box somewhere? Yeah. <laughs> Okay, so now I'm thinking that this fire chief is in on it because they initially ruled it this electrical fault, yep. which would probably have been, you know, seen by the fire chief and he's the one making the determination on it. So, okay, so they've got the fire chief in on it. Shisty. So in
1: 1949, four years after the fire, George was able to persuade some experts at the Smithsonian to conduct an excavation of the site, and look for any evidence that might clear up some of the questions. And in this excavation, several small bone fragments were unearthed, determined to have been human vertebrae. They were confirmed to be lumbar vertebrae, all from the same person, estimated to be a 16 to 17-year-old, and a maximum of 22 years old. Oh. And for the science nerds out there, The sort of expert was able to determine this because some of the vertebrae weren't fused that with maturation fuse. Mm -hmm. So you can sort of date the bones based on that. The problem with this is the oldest missing child was 14 at the time of the incident.
0: They said 16
1: to 22. 16 to 22. Mm. So it seemed unlikely, plausible, if this child is developed very rapidly for a 14-year-old. Plausible, but unlikely to belong to him. Additionally, the bones showed no signs of exposure to flames.
0: Uh, Of course they
1: did. Additionally, additionally...
0: (laughs) (laughs) Additionally, comma.
1: The analyst found it very strange that these were the only bones found at the site.
0: The rest of them also walked away with the ladder.
1: Yeah. Yeah. So... It was eventually suspected that these bones probably came from the dirt that George used to cover the remnants of the fire. Okay. Which is also a little, why is it, why are there human vertebrae in this dirt?
0: <laughs> oh, that's, that's from the previous owners. That's not mine.
1: <laughs> I, I will not go further into that, no. but.
0: No, those are the previous 10 kids that lived here. <laughs>
1: So in the decades that followed, the solder parents would chase tips and leads that they received about their missing children. Most of these led to dead ends, but a few managed to keep their hopes alive. The solders received a tip about their son, Lewis, who was 10 at the time of the fire. In 1967, so over 20 years after the incident, a woman in Houston had written to them saying that Lewis had revealed his true identity to her one night. She believed that he and Maurice, who was another of the missing children, were both living together somewhere in Texas. George was unable to reach the woman in person, but police there tracked down the two men who denied being the Sotter children. The family also received a letter that year with no return address containing a photo of a man who had striking resemblance to Lewis. On the back of the photo, Lewis's name was written along with age 35.
0: I was just gonna say, what was the the time difference? This was like twenty years.
1: It was tw- over twenty years after. Wow. So, they they keep getting leads. Some of them they track down and they turn out not to be true. Some of them they're never able to track down. I know one of the daughters um, they were told was in a convent somewhere. Okay. They tried to track her down. It didn't lead anywhere. So, in nineteen fifty two so seven years after the incident, the family put up a large billboard on the property that displayed photos of each of the five missing children and a description of the incident. The billboard also listed a $5,000 reward for information that would lead to the recovery of any or all of the children. So to be clear, you would only get the reward if it actually led to... decent
0: information. Yeah, if it actually
1: led to finding the children. Got it. Unfortunately, George Slaughter died in 1969, never knowing what happened to his missing children. Jenny stayed in the family home, and, you know, as I said, she's absolutely still grieving at this point. Twenty years later, you don't know what happened to your Mm -hmm. children. She put up fencing around the house and started adding additional rooms to the house, basically sort of blocking herself from the world. Wow. For the remainder of her life, she wore black in mourning and tended to the garden at the site of the former house. Jenny died in 1989. 20 20 years after her husband? 20 years after her husband. Wow. And the billboard on the property didn't come down until after Jenny's death.
0: And she didn't get anything? No. Oh, my.
1: So this billboard essentially stood on the family's property for... 37 years by the time it came down because Jenny basically the remaining children were fully supportive of Jenny Jenny did everything in her power to find her missing children yeah. but by the time the billboard came down in 1989 the photos were faded it was tattered they never like replaced the photos or anything when they um, got that photo potentially of Lewis in the mail. They actually added that to the billboard of like, yeah. you know, there it had all the children's pictures.
0: Here's what he might look Here's like. Here's what now. he might
1: look like now. Wow. It sounds like they never that never led anywhere, but this billboard kind of became like a symbol in West Virginia. It was sort of a landmark, extraordinarily tragic, but people would drive by and see this this really sad missing missing
0: children's yeah. billboard. Could you find anything about the older children that did get out of the house? Because they were old enough to have remembered this.
1: That's a great question.
0: Is it on the next slide?
1: (laughs) The parents' wish was for their children to keep hope alive. To date, the youngest child who survived the fire, Sylvia, who was two at the time, and the people of Fayetteville still revisit this case every year. Despite this, fire professionals today believe that the missing children did die in the fire, but they don't give an explanation of like why there were no bones.
0: I think it's an easy answer, right? You have a house that burned down and of For course, sure. like the mom thought they were in the room and they tried to get them out. They did like all these different attempts to get them out cause they thought they were there. So of course it's an easy answer to say that they're, that they yeah. perished in the fire.
1: So the remnants of the Sauter family home no longer exist. Sort of after the billboard came down, it sounds like the plot of land was sold. Um, Today there's a very average house at the end of the long gravel driveway. Pretty unassuming. Honestly, driving by you wouldn't know what happened there. I find it a little curious, and again, I sort of got down a rabbit hole. With all the technology that exists today and all the interest in this case, I'm shocked that there's never been
0: DNA testing. Well,
1: DNA testing, or, like, a more thorough search of the property. Because if you think about it, if there were bones or remnants left in the fire, they'd still be there unless someone took them. So I find it curious that that there hasn't been any kind of, like, I don't know what you want to call it, like an archaeological dig to try to find anything. So... I mean, maybe that'll happen someday, but it, it just seems like one of those cases that you should be able to find answers to. Yeah. Because if you do some kind of dig and you find absolutely nothing, the conclusion is that either the children weren't killed in the fire or someone took the bones, which also wouldn't make sense. And it would
0: be, like, fairly easy with today's technology yeah. to, like, figure out.
1: Because I think there's also ways... I don't know what it's called but it's this kind of um like a ground
0: you like can call it like a you can map the ground like what's underneath yeah. the surface layer by vibrations
1: yes so i think they did this
0: it's was like it, sound energy that that gets yeah. put in the ground was it exactly john I mean.
1: wayne gacy's property maybe there's a very famous serial killer that they did this because he buried the bodies maybe it was, no john wayne Gacy. I think he buried them like in his basement. Mm. There was a serial killer who buried all of the bodies basically in the land surrounding his house. And they use this sort of radar technology to find additional bodies. So it's like, why, I don't know why there isn't a bigger effort to do that.
0: Some type of like seismic machine I'm imagining.
1: Yeah. So the youngest. And only surviving solder child today is Sylvia, who is that two year old. Two year old? All of the other siblings are gone now. Wow. She doesn't believe that her siblings died in the fire. Good. She was two at the time, and this is one of her earliest memories. She recalls her father bleeding and a quote, terrible symphony of everyone screaming.
0: Yeah. From the window, I imagine.
1: Well, everyone.
0: Sorry, the bleeding was from.
1: Yes, yes. So I'm going to end on some conspiracies about I this was, case. Oh my, I,
0: you should have let me ask a great question. I was going to say, what are the leading <laughs> theories of what happened here? Because I have thoughts, but I want to know, like, what...
1: There's there's kind of one main conspiracy. Possible motive is that it was retaliation for George's statements okay. against fascist Italy.
0: Yep, I think that's that's probably a safe one based on the, the door visits earlier.
1: Yep. Um, possible actor the Sicilian Mafia wow okay again because there's so little known about his first 13 years in Italy it's very hard to know whether anything was going on there why he came to the US why his brother returned to Italy because it seems strange to me like yes he makes remarks about Mussolini but I'm sure he was not the only one no and he's in, like, rural West Virginia. Like, what, what harm is he doing? It seems very strange to, like, have a hit on this guy who's honestly, like, not really doing a whole lot. But like, we don't know if there's more. We don't know what we don't know. Well, basically.
0: I also wonder, like if it was a hit gone wrong, no, it like wasn't supposed to be a hit, but it was just supposed to like scare him. Yeah. You know, like it's not the, the mafia is like out to put a hit on him, but it's these couple bad actors within an organization that just try and scare him a little bit. They warn him, maybe he doesn't stop. And then they, they try and send a message and it goes wrong.
1: So that's part of it. So one thought is that the children may have been taken by someone who knew about the planned arson and said they would have been safe if they left the house. So they're trying to protect the children. So let's say there's a family friend who knows that these youngest kids sleep in the attic. And if there's a house fire, like it's going to be tough to get to them. Mm But they don't want to risk their own life by telling the solder's like, "Hey, somebody's gonna try to burn your then house down." Then out.
0: you're a snitch. Exactly. And like the mafia would know about that.
1: So did somebody, while the solder's were sleeping, essentially go rescue the children? And so when the fire starts, there's no children in the attic.
0: Also, okay. Added to that, was the ball thrown on the roof the signal for the children to get out? Good been. Because when they hear, like, the clunk on the ceiling, all the children get out, and that's when they know what's going to happen.
1: Yep. And if the children had survived all of those years and were aware that their parents and siblings had survived, too, the family believes they may have avoided contact in order to keep safe from harm. So let's say these children were rescued, but the, let's say the mafia or whoever did this arson thinks the children died— but then later found out that the children were essentially saved by someone, Mm -hmm. they might want revenge either on the person who saved the children or just to inflict more harm on the Sodders for basically getting out of this, you know...
0: Punishment or whatever it was supposed to be. Yeah,
1: getting out of whatever it was supposed to be.
0: So it's almost like they were put in, like, a mashed-up witness protection.
1: Exactly. So, like, you know, whether it was Lewis or the other children that were believed to have been seen like they may have been told like hey this was you know you weren't supposed to survive this and if you contact your family or your family knows you're alive
0: everyone's going to be in danger everyone's in danger and it could happen again exactly wow
1: that is kind of the leading theory for those who believe that the children made it out alive yep um I again I don't know what I think. Oh, I think it's okay. hard to believe that. The... Now
0: I see what you're saying about like you don't have an opinion on it because at face value, this is a kidnapping uh, and the fire is a cover up. Yep. But now I can absolutely see the other side, the other argument for they might've tried to save them because they knew they were sleeping in an attic. it could be hard to get out. Yep. Okay.
1: So I find it hard to believe that they died in the fire because I think the bodies would have been found. There's not a chance in my mind that the the bones were yep. burned up in this nope, fire. It not. was a wood house. A wood fire does not burn that hot.
0: No. Nope.
1: So that to me is not credible. I do think it's flawed that, I mean, they really never did a thorough search of the property, but I still think if you have five bodies, you're going to find them. Find something. If you're finding toasters or whatever in the fire, like, you're going to find the yep, bodies. You're gonna find something. So I find it very hard to believe that the children died and there just weren't remnants.
0: I do think that it was, like, an organized effort to plan and then start the fire. Yes. Because you had... Someone had to have moved the ladder. Some, I do think that the trucks were tampered with. I'm not sure why. Maybe it was, like, to go for help. I don't think they thought that the trucks were going to be used to, like, climb to the window, but I think they would be used to, like, go and get help and put the fire out. Yeah. And then also I think the fire chief was at least uh, some maybe paid off. He was – because then he's, like, guilty later. mm
1: mm-hmm.
0: um, He's talking about –
1: Because he was hoping that, like, the the liver, the beef liver mm-hmm. would be found. He would, and it then, would put it to rest. Yeah.
0: It would give them closure. and that, So he's going to – his priest and he's all guilty and trying to say like, Oh, I, I had put this box in there, but really, I think he was guilty about the part he played in covering up and allowing the fire to happen. I don't know. That's a good one.
1: That's, that's the end.
0: That's a really good one. Oh, did we miss anything? Like we talked about the fire chief,
1: talked about the fire chief. Um, where does,
0: where does the, where does the uh, youngest daughter live now? I don't know. That might not be public information.
1: Yeah, I don't know. I know she goes back and, like, visits. If she doesn't live in Fayetteville, she at least visits every year, kind of on the anniversary. And they get people together to talk about it, sort of talk about any new leads, anything like that. Like, she's keeping it alive. But I I don't know where she lives. There wasn't any conclusion about, like, the sightings of the children afterwards, whether those are credible or not. The phone call, they did investigate that kind of weird phone call. They tracked down the woman who called, and she said it was, like, a wrong number situation.
0: It had to be, like, either calling to make sure that they're in their home. Like, you call someone, and then if they pick up, yeah, they're home. Or potentially calling to warn them, but, like, not able to.
1: Yep. There's definitely conspiracies surrounding that face value it looks like it was a wrong number that's a good one yep can you imagine though being the son that was away in the military you come back and you're like what happened you
0: guys (laughs) that was a good one i'm glad you picked that and i'm glad you got so excited about it
1: it's such a good story i i find it so interesting i just I can't imagine that if they died the bones would not have been recovered. I
0: think that's the, probably the biggest tell. What's our recording time at?
1: Uh one twenty. Okay.
0: I had one more question, but I'm gonna save it for next time. Okay. I'm glad that we talked about Gabby Rooker more than I than we had planned. <laughs> but I'll save the other question for next time. Okay. And then we could just do an entire episode on, on the Olympic trials. Too. Oh my gosh,
1: I know. I'm so excited. All right. That's it. I got a plane to catch.
0: I got a little field trip to go on. Ugh. What's ugh?
1: <laughs> I mean? I get to go to Florida. You're going to like a energy plant.
0: That's <laughs> true. All right. I don't know. I like nerdy stuff.
1: Yeah. You. Yeah. <laughs> All right. See ya. See ya.